His name tag read, Fuck Off, and that got a lot of terrible looks from his clients. The spider princess got especially upset, but only because the sentiment resembled her late father's name. Most of his clientele didn't even bother with his name. They just wanted results. Results were what he produced at his best and quickly. They usually just called him the man, something to differentiate him from the other couriers. He adopted the moniker and tacked it on at the end of his name. To him, and according to his impressive business cards, he was Dan the Man. Dan wasn't just a courier, he was a professional adventurer. He promised not only packages picked up or dropped off, but with it would come a tale of danger and daring do. Dan was damn good at what he did. He had a knack, an ever-present hunch, for where trouble was and where it would lead him. Now, he just charges huge fees for it instead of going to the clink for a night or two. His credentials as a pro gave him extremely liberal abuse of any of the laws in the galaxy. He took these liberties with both stringent professionalism and reckless abandon. He had done quite well for himself out on the market. His resume included getting the ashes of the Jade Phoenix for the Shadow Barons, freeing three books from planet Raybrad 451, and an antique PlayStation 4 console for the aforementioned Spider Princess. For that last one, he had to fight his way out of the oppressive regime of the Plumber Brothers on the virtual planet Nintendo 64. Now, Dan was on his way to the heart of the genre galaxy on a mission he was sure held narrow escapes and, hopefully, gratuitous sexual encounters he was used to and renowned for. The ruler of the galaxy, one King Fikshun, had sent the message loud, clear, and wide. Dan was to appear in court before him. Dan would be paid handsomely, but it would not just be the money that would be rewarding. Dan read into that, as there would be a beautiful and nubile princess. He'd get pawned off at him. Sometimes it was good to be Dan. The king's court was just as regal as Dan would have thought, and then some. Thick tapestries hung from the walls, woven in deep and rich colors, depicting ages long gone and triumphs unforgotten. The tapestries hung down to the pale floor, made from the whitest of marble and adorned in gold. It may be good to be Dan, but it was better to be the king. Dan passed concubines, courtesans, and visiting dignitaries on his way to the throne. As he expected, the dignitaries that knew Dan acknowledged him with respect, and those that didn't know him acknowledged him with fear. The courtesans split like the sea of red on the planet Hestone, and the concubines fussed about and swooned. The king was seated at his throne. At the end of a spacious hall, he was flanked by his family, the queen his wife, and, Dan pleasantly noted, his beautiful daughter. The princess was stop intergalactic traffic gorgeous. While Dan wasn't a bad-looking guy, the only way he could stop traffic would be to throw himself into it, and even then, that was no guarantee. Dan wasn't the first to fantasize about the princess. Dan wasn't even the only one in the room doing it. The princess's good looks and even better body were the things war were started over. Not yet, but eventually he was sure. Dan was snapped out of the start of a lurid fantasy with the princess by the king's voice. The king's voice would have made God jealous. Your reputation precedes you, Dan, he boomed like bass at a rock show. But I rather think even you won't be able to save us. Dan's wide eyes jumped from the princess to the king and narrowed to snake-like slits. I can pick up anything you're putting down. Anything. 
The king looked Dan up and down. His milky old eyes searched for something in Dan. His head eventually hung down in disappointment. We're doomed, he mumbled. Dan looked expectantly at the king, waiting to be addressed. But for only a second, Dan wasn't known for his patience. Look, I came here for a reason, and in a hurry, I might add. I wasted a fair amount of gas doing that. You'll either give me the contract or gas money. Dan did his best impression of patience, but it only made him look as nervous and twitchy as a chihuahua alone in the Arctic. The king's head slowly rose, with a blithe smile dancing dangerously close to his lips. The court was silent in shock and awe of someone speaking to the king in such a fashion. The last time someone did that, the courtesan had fed the beast behind the door. Not a pleasant way to go, considering that one would rather be lit on fire and shoved into a wood chipper while having a double root canal performed. The Folgers' crystals, the king said. If the court could have gone any more silent, they would have heard the pin say, Hey, did I just drop? Dan was dumbstruck. The Folgers' crystals were the stuff of legend. It was rumored that the crystals were the last remnants of the galaxy when it violently exploded, formed, and then cooled. It was said, in hushed tones, that the crystals held inside of them the entire DNA for the genre galaxy, its beginning, its ends, and most of the middle bits, all of the known universes swirling around like a dull fog, sparkling with the birth, death, and rebirth of stars, were reflected in the crystal's facets. No one had ever seen the fabled artifact, but there was talk about a monastery at the edge of all space, just short of the wall. The monks that kept the temple were known for their mysticism and a great secret. Dan was willing to bet his life, limb, and most importantly, reputation, on the secret being the crystals. I'll do it, said Dan, but it's going to cost. Big. The king looked around apathetically as to let Dan know that money would be no object by the look of the lush surroundings. Whatever you desire, you shall have, boomed the king. He caught Dan leering at the princess. Anything. Dan strode out of the king's palace, a happy humanoid. There was a graceful stride instilled in his step that hadn't been there when he schlepped into the palace, looking for gas money. He was going to have his very own princess. Again. He'd always wanted one of those. Again. She was going to make him a happy man. And sandwiches. He fantasized about this for quite a long time. Lost in a haze of sex and prepared food, sometimes entwined, he almost ran full tilt into the valet. Sir, one of the valet's heads looked quizzically at Dan as the other lazily smoked a cigarette. Dan fished through the pockets on his belt. They all led to different dimensions where things could be displaced in space, like off-site storage facilities in the late 20th century. The belt was worth every considerable penny for Dan's own pocket dimensions. He found the near-translucent holographic barcode that served as the ticket for his spacecraft back. Thank you, sir. Billy. Go get Mr. Uh, the man's transport, please. I'm on break, croaked the second head with a cloud of acrid smoke. Well, get off your ass and get the ship. Now, the first head turned back to Dan. Sorry, sir. We'll get on it right away. Not till I'm off break, Quarkhole. At this point, it appeared as if the first head... Corkhole, relented to his brother's rather harsh rebuttal until Billy got jerked sideways as Corkhole took control and started trudging off across the parking lot. Billy took a second to gather his wits, and one body began to scuttle along like a drunken crab. Dan's ship 
was a silver sliver of a thing that glided through space at slightly less than the speed of thought. Inside, it resembled a posh Romanian castle's interior, thanks to the displacement envelope he had paid extra for at the dealership. Everything that cost Dan the extra cash was worth it for the image of professionalism he wanted and achieved at exuding. Expensive was his look. The side door opened with a sigh, and Dan stepped in. He made his way calmly to the controls and took off. He glanced a sideways glance at the irate and under-tipped valets, and didn't give himself the luxury of freaking out until he was well into subspace. He leaned back and pushed shiny pebble-like buttons on his central command console. He watched as the inset portal to his right built a ceramic mug out of base elements in, in the air and out of the molecule tank in the ship's hull. The mug filled with a dark, viscous fluid that was almost Arabica coffee. He snatched the cup and gingerly sipped the hot drink and peered out at the stars racing by his windshield. He deeply wondered how exactly he was going to not only track down the contracted item, but also if the Folgers crystals really existed. He knew from all of his misadventures throughout the genre galaxy that somewhere deep in space, or rather, where it got kind of thin at the end, there was a monastery that was spoken about only in hushed tones and usually as infrequently as possible, humanly or otherwise. He leaned forward with the reassuring creak from the imported Bovlonian leather made from the finest skins of the Bovia lactate lizard, a strange creature known for its smooth, scaled hide and its milk, which tasted like what many of the universe's top chefs and culinary critics referred to as a perfect summer day. The monastery was just short of the wall, a boundary of the known universe, beyond which nothing was known. Scholars from all walks of life, throughout all of time, had put forth well-thought-out, and some half-baked, if not less than half, theories and conjectures about what was on the other side of the wall. The theories ranged from the simplest of logic, nothing was there, to the wildest and ludicrous, that the other side of the wall was an office where drug-addled, hyper-intelligent monkeys wrote the universe as it happened. The originator of this hypothesis, Dr. Wardjuk, was promptly fired from his position of Dean of Rydlon Six University, but rehired shortly afterwards as head custodian. Dan closed his eyes and rubbed his temples, anticipating the intergalactic-sized headache he knew he was about to get. Computer, I want a navigational analysis of the easiest route from here to the wall. Several progression lights flickered and blinked. Then, as a map appeared, being superimposed over his whooshing view from the windshield, the computer's tinny, mechanized voice spoke up. There are approximately seven planets you will have to pass to reach the described destination. Seven? Dan growled incredulously. You have designated that you wish to avoid any and all toll roads. Dan hated toll booth operators. After a summer stint as one, he realized that toll booth operators were loathsome creatures that, having the snot kicked out of them by life, wallowed in the ill-perceived authority granted to them. They did everything to make everyone else as miserable as them. Only pollsters, vidphone marketers, holofilm critics, and women that turned down Dan for dates pissed him off more. Yes, fine then. Head out that way and wake me up when we get there. Or for meals, whichever one comes first. Dan ordered the lights on in his room. He fished a half-finished bottle of lunatic gobbler, one of the most potent and dangerous inebriates, ever conceived due to the levels of intoxication it quickly induces and its ability to run combustion-based engines out from under his sleep pod 
I took several long, deep slugs from it. It felt like God's electric piss ran through his veins just shortly before he tossed the empty bottle aside and fell hard into his pod. The canopy hissed as it shut and hermetically sealed Dan in for his prescribed 11-hour nap. Dan was sorely disappointed, and his mood resembled a lemon in that the computer had woken him up, not for a Salisbury steak, but that they had reached the first planet between him and the crystals. Stirrers. Dan listlessly fell into his captain's chair. Give me info, he mumbled so incoherently that the computer had to run six different voice tracking programs to glean what he wanted. The computer beeped and superimposed the planet's history over the windshield. The planet Stirrers was established as a retirement bastion for the rebels. Its rich history includes political corruption, fascism, rebellion, and a religious order that utilizes oneness with the cosmos to access their supernatural powers. At one point in time, the rebels commanded an army of followers, but after several unsuccessful attempts to clarify their own history, many fled the rebellion due to confusion, anger, and an overwhelming sense that the films based on the exploits had robbed them of countless dollars. Huh, Dan said, remembering. The vid discs with the extra footage were just, you know, there are no words cruel enough. Dan visibly shuddered. Computer, take us down. On his way to the exit hatch, Dan mused about those supposed supernatural powers and what connection, if at all, they had to the mystic monks of the wall. Maybe he could skip over the rest of his itinerary if Star Wars yielded some viable answers. If not, another adventure would just be charged to King Fikshun's bill. The stale desert air hissed through the hatch as it lowered. Sand whipped around in a vortex into the hold and made Dan cough and curse. He lit up an interstellar brand filtered cigarette. Let's meet the natives, he said under his breath as his boots crunched onto the planet's surface. The first thing Dan noticed was the sheer wall of sickening nostalgia that hit him. It was like a prize fighter's punch. The cherished feelings of remembering how great this planet once was and the disgust of what it had become. He looked down at the wrist-mounted comms unit that linked up with the ship. So where the fark are they? he demanded into it. The thing beeped a few times and spat up a topographical hologram. All inhabitations are red, sir. Blow it out your gravitational engine manifold, you bastard machine. You know I'm colorblind. The hologram refreshed. The tinny mechanical voice piped up and informed him that the populated areas were now colored fuchsia. That's better, I guess. He eyed the map like a drunken tiger, and after several grunts of various emotions, running the gamut from utterly confused to belligerently sober, he started trudging south. That's where the computer said the only bar planet side was. When he arrived at the Obluxer Cantina and fine dining, he made Thirsty look like a water-bottling plant. He sat down at the bar in the darkest corner and ordered a tall glass of lunatic gobbler. The barman hissed through his teeth at the order and swore in some indecipherable language that only devils and the insane drink that horrid brew that surely was the piss of the great evil himself. Dan let the bartender in on the fact that in the second pocket from the left he had a dimensionally collapsed neutron brazooka. The bartender reneged on his previous statement and gladly poured Dan's drink. Dan downed the glass of swill in one unhealthy gulp and ordered another. As the bartender, a green-skinned, bug-eyed thing with flittering wings, came up to him, Dan thought twice and told the bartender just to leave the bottle and get him a straw. That was Dan the Man. I'm Doug, and this is Mr. Wright.
This episode, the name is Carbon Copy, and it's about when you come across works that are similar to some of your ideas. First off, don't be intimidated. I know I was. Dan the Man, when I originally wrote it, I had not read Douglas Adams yet. Yeah, I was a little late coming to the party. I didn't read Douglas Adams until probably my mid-twenties, when it was recommended that I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy after having written most of Dan the Man at that point. When I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I was unfortunately very dismayed in that the humor and central premise seemed like I had lifted it from Mr. Adams. I had not. I hadn't even read Douglas Adams yet to be inspired by him, which I am. And that was one of those things where I just went, shit, can I finish this? Will people think I'm ripping him off? Well, here's what I ended up doing, was taking inspiration from it and changing enough of Dan the Man that it was an homage to Mr. Adams, that it was influenced by him, but not a direct ripoff. I had to change a few things so that it wouldn't seem like I was just taking Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe or Galaxy and putting in my own stuff and ripping him off. Another piece that happened like that was after I got done my first novel, Strangest Kindness, I got recommended the Sandman Slim series by Richard Cadry in that... My friend who had read the Sandman Slim series said, Hey, this is a lot like your first book. Take a read. Now, after reading Richard Cadry's work, I realized that, yes, while he and I both write urban fantasy, his was more fantasy-based and mine was more urban and grounded. Um, so it was different enough that, obviously, I was interested in his work. I now own almost all of his books, but they aren't so similar that I was worried about it in that compared to Dan the Man and Douglas Adams. So what can you do to change? Well, obviously you're probably not going to have the same characters. Um, you might have the same premise. Now you can always tweak that, and I am going to talk on a later episode about turning conventions on their heads. You can do that. Um, more on that later. But take a look at your plot. Take a look at specific details. Try to rework them. What can you lose? What can you change? And these things are going to happen. Alan Moore has a great theory that of called uh, thought storms that happen in an idea space, kind of a speed force astral plane of ideas, um, that that's why several writers have the same idea at the same time. He has noticed this with his friends among him, Alan Moore, with Warren Ellis, Grant Morrison, Garth Ennis, Stephen Grant, there are others. But they all seem to have similar ideas, and that is some kind of zeitgeist. So sometimes it's just unavoidable that you're going to have a similar idea to someone who's had it before you, um, or having it at the same time, and the trick is to just differentiate yourself from that. Change whatever details you want to or have to. Sometimes there is no compromise. Stand the man is going to seem very Douglas Adams. Um, I will combine both examples because I just thought of it, that Richard Cadry's Cooper Heist series is very much like if Douglas Adams wrote a supernatural fantasy heist series. But it's just different enough from A, Cadry's previous work, and B, 
all of Douglas Adams's stuff that it seems wholly original because he added a new element, that supernatural element, which wasn't in the Hitchhiker's Guide series. So that's something you can do. Maybe introduce a new element or lose an element and or replace an element. Um, something that can be an underpinning to your work that's not there in the pre-existing work. So I hope you've given something to think about. But like I said, don't be discouraged. Don't be intimidated. These things are going to happen. It's like musicians. I have a musician friend who if one guitar lick sounds familiar but he can't put his finger on it, he will just toss that guitar riff because even though he can't place it, he knows it sounds familiar and he doesn't want to sound like he's ripping someone off. Do the same with your work. If it feels weird, if it feels like you're taking the words directly out of someone else's mouth, read plagiarism, or maybe intellectual property plagiarism, get rid of it. Change it. Whatever you have to do to get rid of that gut-clinching feeling. So while you're at it, just keep writing, because they're going to keep reading right on. If you liked this, check out some of our other shows like Mr. Right, Exotic Liability, and No Applause, Just the Clap. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher.